Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. In this episode, we hear from Belinda Everingham, founder and CEO of Australian natural products brand Bondi Wash. Founded in 2013 as a natural alternative to the chemical-laden products that she continually caused her headaches, Belinda began experimenting with essential oils and Australian botanicals in her kitchen and soon decided to leave her management consulting career behind to take the leap to start Bondi Wash. It was not all smooth sailing though. In this episode, we hear more from Belinda about how she took on a giant US competitor when it came to trademarking and some other great golden nugget pieces of advice. Hi, Belinda. Thank you so much for your time today on How to Start Up. It would be wonderful if you could give a brief introduction as to who you are and a bit about the company you started. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Juliet. I'm Belinda Everingham, the founder and CEO of Bondi Wash, which I founded about nine years ago. Bondi Wash is a company designed to bring Australian botanicals into natural products. So we create products for the home, baby, body and dog and all of them feature the scents and the extracts of Australian plants. Incredible. Why did you start Bondi Wash? Well it's a little bit of a long story so bear with me but when my children were quite little I was spraying a commercial supermarket kitchen bench spray in the kitchen and it gave me a pretty bad headache and I thought goodness if it's doing that to me what's it doing to my children and the environment and I then sort of tried to buy the natural ones but they didn't smell good or they didn't work very well and so fast forward a few years my children had all started school so I had a little bit more time on my hands I was looking for something else to do and I was up in Queensland on holiday in a place called Port Douglas and I was surrounded there by trees and plants that I'd never heard of things like Kwandong and Kakadu Plum and I was also reading the book Perfume by Patrick Suskind, which is a beautifully written book all about the power of fragrance. It's about one man's mission for the perfect scent. And it's quite a mission he goes on, isn't it? It is quite a mission. And it's set in Paris and France Mm. and grass and places that I've been and loved. I do love fragrance. And I, I started wondering whether we in Australia could create place like grass where we propagate our plants and put them into you know products to use both their scents and their properties and that was sort of the original aha moment if you like and I came back to Sydney and started researching and discovered all these wonderful plants that I'd really never heard of and started buying them all and then started developing scents around them so they weren't just the usual tea tree and eucalyptus that a lot of people have heard of but they were things like lemon scented tea tree or Tasmanian pepper or eucalyptus peppermint that I bought and they're just a little bit more beautiful and a little bit more unusual and I started putting them together with other scents to create beautiful perfumes. As a business owner when you're juggling so many things how do you manage to do all the different things at all the different times? It's a great question and I think sometimes I do it better than others. Right now I feel a little bit overwhelmed with all the things that I've taken on. I think one of the things I do is I do everything with my full attention. So even though I might have a very, very long to-do list, and I've learned to do this over time, instead of trying to do a million things at once, I really try and focus on the task at hand, whatever that might be. And it might be just chatting to a neighbor, but I think it's probably the sort of cliched mindfulness. But in every situation, I'm fully there. And what that means is that some things slip down the to-do list, but it's the price you pay, I guess, for doing things as 
well as you possibly can and not getting stressed about them. That's really interesting because it relates to a book I've read called Ikigai about finding a sense of flow and purpose and that yeah. actually multitasking doesn't help anyone. And if you do one thing and do it really well, yeah, great. and then you sort of come out of that and then you flip to something else. Because if you do lots of things a little bit, you don't ever get that sense of job satisfaction. Yeah. And I think it leads to quite high stress levels. Mm. Whereas as much as I do have a lot on and I do get things wrong sometimes and I make mistakes, I just don't worry about them. Yeah. So I just move on to the next thing and try and fix the mistakes I've made. And to shrug it off. Do you have advice how to sort of let that go? Because some people can harbour those mistakes. How do you move past them? Certainly in the early years, I would, you know, we had this huge legal battle with Abercrombie and Fitch. And I remember when that first happened, they had the trademark Bondi Beach in the categories of products that we owned. So we're blocking our trademark in a number of markets and not behaving particularly nicely through their lawyers. And that really distressed me. And I did lose a little bit of sleep over that. But I suppose as time goes on and you have more and more of those experiences and disappointments and frustrations, you just learn to let it go and you realise, because we came through that and in the end it wasn't a complete disaster, but it was just about getting through it. So I think that's probably the lesson I've learned through hardship. And the other thing that I would say is that often in situations where things just seem dire, there is a silver lining. So if, for example, the graphic designer that I was working with is slow and hasn't done a great job and things are not going as fast as I would have liked, then all of a sudden you realise the packaging wouldn't have been perfect if we'd released it back then. So the time that's taken, which was frustrating originally, has actually led to a better product. So just looking for the silver lining. Everyone says you really do learn by your mistakes and you learn them fast. Lots of people don't realise that when you start a business, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And some things can come out of nowhere that can floor you and potentially collapse your business. So I was hoping to ask you what your moment like that was like and how you handled it. Well, I think it probably was the Abercrombie and Fitch story that really did floor me. I wasn't anticipating we'd have so many problems with trademarking. I'd done research. I'd spent a lot of time actually thinking through the brand name and checking trademarks to make sure it was available in various countries because I knew that we wanted to sell globally. I wanted a name that said Australia in sort of a modern way. I live in Bondi, so it sort of had some authenticity. But yeah, I I did the homework, but I just didn't recognise that Bondi is actually not that well-known globally. That's so interesting. I think because we grew up in the UK with Home and Away and Neighbours, but perhaps maybe in the States it wasn't so well known. I think that's exactly right. And even in Europe, people refer to our brand as Bondi. They don't add the wash and across Asia, it's Bondi. So people haven't really heard of Bondi. So it's been an interesting journey, but the trademarking battle was something that really made me feel a bit physically ill when it started. Knowing that I was going into battle with a huge company like Abercrombie & Fitch was not something that I really wanted to face. And I did lose sleep over it. You know, I don't lose sleep anymore over most things because I've seen so many different problems and we've tackled them and got through them. But at the time, I was really quite worried about what it would mean for the business. So what happened? You were launching a business called Bondi Wash and researching your trademarks, getting everything going. And then did they come to you and say no? So we launched in Australia with the name Bondi Wash. And the way trademarking works is you have to protect it in your local country first before you can 
even apply to protect it globally. So we did that and that wasn't a problem. With the help of a law firm, I applied for global trademarks and then also in the US. Then we got the response from the US PTO, the Patents and Trademarks Authority, that we couldn't have it. It was refused. Provisional refusal is what it's called because Abercrombie & Fitch owned the brand name Bondi Beach in the categories that we were applying. So they probably just like two years before we put in our application, they'd put in an application for a brand name called Bondi Beach and they had various sort of variations of it as well. And so that then prevented us from having Bondi Wash because the USPTO thought it was too similar. So then we put in an application because their brand name was not successful. So they'd launched this range, it hadn't worked and they weren't selling anything using this brand name Bondi Beach. So we applied for it to be granted to us on the basis that they were not using it and they fought it really hard. So it was quite stressful actually at the time because I was paying significant legal fees both here in Australia with our local lawyers and with US lawyers. I thought, okay, let's see what I can do. Contacted Abercrombie and Fitch via LinkedIn. I contacted their legal team and they just referred me to their lawyers. They didn't want to deal with me directly at all. Their lawyers were a company called Jones Day, very big, well-known legal firm. So we were back dealing lawyer to lawyer. The lawyers won't deal with me directly. They will only deal with other lawyers. And then I also thought, okay, well, I might contact the USPTO to just explain the situation to them because they obviously are not aware that Bondi is quite a well-known place in Australia. And so I found the woman who had made this judgment and spoke to her and I told her the whole story and I said, we're a genuine business based in this place called Bondi. And I spoke to her at length, explaining what the situation. And then a couple of months later, she made a decision against us again. It didn't work at all. She really didn't care that we were a genuine Australian business in this place called Bondi. And then we had to negotiate. Legal fees kept mounting up. And it was over the course of a number of years that this was negotiated with Abercrombie and Fitch. And I did an interview with a journalist and I just mentioned it in passing. And then I said, you should probably not mention that actually, because I didn't want Mm. it to go public. I think she told somebody else and they contacted me, someone within the ABC, which is Australia's national broadcaster, contacted me and said, we've heard about this story. It doesn't seem right. We want to do an interview with you. And at this point, it was probably two years down the track and we'd just got Mm -hmm. to the point of signing an agreement with Abercrombie and Fitch. It was almost signed. And I really did not want the story to go public because they'd behaved pretty aggressively throughout the whole process. And I thought if they hear that this has gone public, this is national news, they'll blame me and that the agreement might be defunct. Had you got to a point where you were able to use the word Bondi in these states? You have to apply for a trademark in certain product categories. So they had the trademark in body lotions and body washes. And we couldn't have that trademark in those product categories, but we could have the trademark in dog wash and and cleaning products and that kind of thing. Mm. So that was the agreement that we had come to. And it was not perfect, but it gives us some protection across a range of our products, not the entire range. Yeah. So not ideal, but still better than no trademark at all in the US. Anyway, the journalist called. I said, no, I really would prefer you not to run this story because it could jeopardise mm. our whole agreement. And he kept harassing me, wanting to do an interview, wanting to sort of do, do anything. And I just said, no, no, no. And then he said, I'm running the story anyway and did and 
Yeah. <laughs> I know. This is a lesson for anyone listening that when you say it's off the record, it really isn't off the record. So it's better to say nothing than something that you want to retract. The story ran, I was on a flight to Melbourne and it was all over, I was in the Qantas lounge and it was all over the, <laughs> the scrolling news panel, small Bondi company in a David versus Goliath battle with a big US company. And I felt sick and was quite stressed about what was going to happen. And I said to the girls in the store, I said, just don't talk to anybody. Yeah. Just keep really quiet, thinking that was the best. No comment. No comment. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which they did. So I was in transit for most of the day and then found out subsequently that all these journalists were coming to the store with film cameras and with microphones and the trade minister's office was calling and the local mayor's office was calling but the staff in the store had just said no comment no comment no comment so didn't really speak to anybody which I think at the time was probably the best response in this situation just because of where we're at with the negotiation. It then became a big news story. This became the second or third <laughs> segment on the national news that evening. And that interviewed all these people in Bondi, that interviewed the local mayor. And they were all supporting you, I presume. Yeah. So they interviewed a lot of people on the street and people couldn't believe that a big US company could own the phrase Bondi Beach. And it really is quite surprising. Yeah. It's not theirs to own. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it was lovely, actually, the support that we got. And then subsequently, we had so many people mention it to us. You know, how are you going with your battle with Crombie and Fitch? And so there was actually a really lovely silver lining in the local support for a genuine business yeah. like ours that is based in Bondi and also brand recognition. But also good on you for not taking no for an answer. Yes, you might be a small startup at the time, but why shouldn't you take on a giant and yeah. why should it be so unfair the established brand with a heck of a lot of budget they can throw for legal fees? Because it almost puts you out of the running if you don't have the budget to pay for the lawyers. I know, I know. And the way they behaved mm. without going into the detail mm. was not not decently. They did not behave decently. They knew the story. It was not a good example of corporate behaviour. What was the outcome once the story had gone out nationally? Eventually they issued a public statement because I think they were getting calls from our trade minister, from the Waverley Council mayor about how can you as a US company own the name of our famous beach. And so they issued a public statement saying we are not preventing Bondi Wash from selling any of its product in mm. any market. So yeah. to me, I took that as a sign that they were not going to fight. If we did end up selling yeah. our body washes in the US, you know, they weren't going to make issue of it. So it ended up being quite a good outcome. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of money on legal fees, but the result was quite positive, actually. Lovely to know that your local community backs you and wants to see you succeed. And as you said, I mean, purely from a business perspective, that marketing and PR element, that word of mouth being on the national news cannot hurt your brand at all which as you said a silver lining to those things I think what I'm learning is that any sort of negative thing that comes through the business you either learn something great from it or it will come back around in a positive later on but you just might not know how and given that you are now a very tried and tested entrepreneur what does success look like for you? I think to the outside world success looks like success is numbers really how big are you how many staff do you have how many countries are you in but for me it is creating brands that people love creating products that people love and trust so it's these days it's kind of easy to set up a business and sell things but it's not so easy to create a brand that people recognize and trust and the stories I get from customers 
that say, oh, my God, this cleared up my baby's eczema or your yeah. laundry wash is the only one that doesn't cause my skin to get irritated. Those, that sort of is why I keep doing it. And the financial mm. success is important because it then enables me to do more. And that's really the only way I look at it. So yes, of course, revenue is important, profit's important, and cash flow is important because then it's more money to just yeah. keep doing other things. But it's much more about the brand and I would say the journey. So the people you surround yourself with and how much enjoyment you're getting from every day. And a lot of guests have talked about the weight of responsibility that arrives when you start a company. And I remember the the five minutes it took on company's house to register mine and suddenly I had company director duties. I was like, what have I done? How do you manage this weight that's on your shoulders? I think it's a double-edged sword. So my background was management consulting, where we were just advising other people on what to do. And I loved sort of the intellectual side of that, but you never, ever actioning the recommendations. So this is vastly different, obviously. Every decision you make is on your shoulders and it's quite empowering, but it's also quite frightening. I now love it because you've got full accountability. So I can't blame anybody else. If, if things go wrong, it's all on my shoulders. But the flip side is if things go right, you feel a sense of satisfaction that it's your decisions that have led, led down this path. Is there anything that if you could go back and have your time again, would you not do? I certainly, I've made mistakes with hiring and they're always very painful, but not just for us, but for the person involved. So I think learning to hire a little bit slower is definitely a lesson. And what we do now with hiring is actually give people an exercise to do. Maybe it seems basic to a lot of people, but we weren't doing that initially. We were just doing an interview. So actually giving them some on-the-job test, if you like. So that's one small thing. Also, I've taken advice from people that I shouldn't have and done things that weren't quite right, didn't really listen to my intuition. And that's a hard one because these people are wise and experienced. Mm. But looking back, there's a few decisions I've made simply on the basis of what people were telling me that were not great. Mm. That's interesting. So your real gut instinct should be your guiding light. Absolutely. The more I do it, the more I think that. Yeah. Even if people think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Give me an example. If you've done something that you had an idea that you were adamant your gut was telling you was the right thing and everyone else was like, no. I've had some advice from a guy who was running a big cosmetics company, which was fantastic. And most of the advice was sensational and helpful. But he said to me, don't go into Europe. It's not worth it. It's too complicated and it's not worth it. And I had started going into Europe and Thankfully, I didn't take that piece of advice. I, I kept going with Europe and Europe's a fantastic market for us now. One of the reasons I did go into Europe was because of the prestige value, particularly in France and Italy, because we sell a lot into Asia. Having a European presence actually gives you a lot of kudos in the other Asian markets. So I kept going with it. It's definitely been hard, but it's been very, very worth it. Given that this podcast is all about sharing advice, what was the best piece of advice given to you when you started? And does it still hold true today? I had a guy who was running a big fashion company at the time tell me that different parts of the business will need your attention at different times. And that seems just like an obvious thing, but it's actually something that I it is quite helpful. So at any given point in time, something will be in crisis. In 2016, it was our warehouse. So I spent a lot of time just focusing on getting that right 
and it's really paid off in spades. At the beginning of COVID, we took the time to invest in inventory management systems, which was painful. But now there's no way we could be doing what we're doing if we hadn't spent those months getting that system up and running. Whether it's supply chain or marketing or staffing, there's always something that needs a lot of your attention and it goes in waves. So that was actually quite helpful advice in terms of how you run the business and focus your time. And who do you listen to now for feedback? These days I I listen to anybody and everybody. If anybody is willing to give me criticism or feedback, I'm always immensely grateful. Even if it's painful feedback, whether it's about a product that they don't like, I'm just grateful. People are so polite. So if they're actually willing to say something that is negative, I'm grateful. I also use my children actually as a sounding board because they tend to have no filter. And can be pretty harsh. So they often give me wonderful negative feedback, <laughs> which I really am grateful for. And then what would you say is the most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself since becoming your own boss? I'd never really managed big teams before. So now we've got 17 people across the world. And one of the things I've discovered is that I love the seeing people develop and grow. So, you know, taking people who've had no business experience and seeing them blossom has just been the most rewarding thing. So I take quite a lot of pride in that and it's something that I'd never really done before. A European brand manager, for example, started working at Jigsaw, the fashion chain, and she started with us here in Sydney. And then when she moved back to Europe, I said, why don't you manage our brand there? This is when it was first starting. And she's done the most amazing job and now manages the whole continent. So that's an example of someone who's just developed and grown so much with our nurturing and support. And what do you enjoy the most about being self-employed? I enjoy the freedom. And the least? The relentlessness. Of course, of course, that relentlessness. What did you learn about pricing your product throughout this last few years? Get it right to start with, I would say because it's quite hard to change your pricing. It's quite a strategic decision as well, how you price yourself. But we do a bit of a triangulation exercise. So we start off with seeing what the market would pay, where we want to position ourselves in the market. And then we look at the cost of the product. And if the margin doesn't work, then we either review the formulation to try and get it more affordable, or sometimes we'll accept a smaller margin. If it's a strategic product, like our dishwash, for example, is quite expensive to produce, but we couldn't really charge the normal margin on that because nobody would buy it at $50 a bottle, say. But generally speaking, we sort of aim for consistent margins and we think strategically as well about where the price sits in the market. And then in terms of efficiencies... Are there some strategies or processes or systems that you've got that really help you managing all the hats and all the time that seems to disappear every day? Yeah, definitely. One thing I do, which I don't know many people do, is I try and avoid meetings. Meetings tend to take up a lot of time. And as a founder as well, I take up a lot of creativity. So where possible, I completely avoid meetings or do them relatively quickly possible. I know that doesn't sound very practical, but I really try and have my week almost blank if I possibly can. Oh, I'm so jealous. I've tried to have a a two meeting a day cap rule. It's definitely not working right now, but I feel like you can never actually do any of the do if you're constantly in a meeting. You can't and it's really important. And I think especially in a creative business, you need freedom to be creative and meetings just And just to think things through as well, because you need to sit with something for a while and 
really dedicate some time and it doesn't have to be at a laptop either. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. The other thing is technology because I think technology managed well really saves you a lot of time. Oh, the other thing I thought about is when I was in consulting, we generally had a massive workload. So a lot of times people spoke about the 80-20 rule or it's called the Pareto principle where you focus 80% of your energy on the 20% of the most important things. So it's a really simple mm-hmm. rule, but it just focuses you on what's important. All the other things, yes, you've got to get them done, but if they're not fundamental, they just keep dropping down the Mm, to-do list. Yeah, that's amazing. Are there any holes in the road that you'd flag to new founders to be wary of? I think cash flow is really difficult for small business. So that would be something to just keep a really solid eye on. Even as you get bigger and even if you're successful, cash flow is very difficult. The other area where we've struggled, but I don't know if we could have done things differently, is trademarking. Trademarking is really hard, especially with a global brand. So get your brand name right early on. Do the market research. If you do want to go global, make sure you look at whether the trademark will be successful in other countries, whether you can trademark it at all in other countries. And then any last golden pieces of advice that you'd like to share? Trust your intuition. This is your business. And what you think and how you feel is really going to guide your success. So often there'll be a little niggle and that's when usually I've ignored that when things go wrong. The other thing that I often overlay my decision making with is the question, will this help the company still be around in 50 years? So it's helpful, actually, that kind of long term thinking rather than acting in the short term. Think about Ah. whether this is going to help you build a brand that will still be there in 50 years, helps make decisions on a daily basis. Oh, I love that. Long-term view. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Belinda. My pleasure, Juliet. If you'd like to contact Belinda, you'll find all of her details in the show notes, along with a recap of the advice that she has so kindly shared. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it will really help other people starting a company discover it. 